the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello and welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, where the people who have needed blood thank the donors who have saved, prolonged or improved their lives. My name is Kate Fisher. I'm the creator of Milkshakes for Mali, an award-winning Australian storyteller and a changemaker. I'm on a mission to end the persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, inspired by our seven-year-old daughter, Marley, who started receiving life-saving blood products when she was just three. She is currently in remission from autoimmune encephalitis, and we have had Australian plasma donors to thank for keeping her alive. Marley will be dependent on blood donors for the rest of her life. As for her, blood products are life-saving when she relapses, and life-preserving for every infusion in between. This podcast is the creative solution to a social problem, which is persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, as simply not enough people donate blood. One in three Australians will need blood in their lifetime, and yet only about one in 30 eligible Australians donate. It's my mission to change that, while thanking as many blood donors as I can reach along the way. Over the last two weeks, um, if you follow our socials, you will have seen a lot of me talking um, about the Oz Mumpreneur Awards and sharing a lot more content than we normally do um, and the most incredible Australian stories from blood product recipients and messages from their loved ones. Um, I'm hoping after hearing these episodes and seeing these videos that Milkshakes for Marley listeners will join me in my blood donation advocacy. And there's a number of ways that you can be involved. The first is to make an appointment to donate blood by calling Lifeblood on 13 14 95 and become a member of the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. Um, I'll pop links in the show notes on how to do this, but it's as simple as telling a staff member when you arrive for your blood donation or when you book it in over the phone that you would like your donation to count towards the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team tally. Uh, Number two is like, share, rate, review this episode and previous ones. Send episodes to friends, particularly if they are blood donors, and let them know um, that this podcast is presented in standalone documentary-style episodes. So it's my hope that now there is something in this catalogue of episodes of interest to nearly everybody. Um, There's no need to listen to them in order or even to listen to every episode. Just find one that is of interest to you, and that is a perfect place to start. Uh, Remind your friends that if they have ever been a blood donor, they may be responsible for saving, prolonging or improving the quality of life of my podcast guests each week. And if you haven't seen it yet, please check out the new website. It's www.milkshakesformarley.org. So it's the word for F-O-R and Marley is M-A-R-L-E-I-G-H dot org where you can find information and photos on Marley's journey to diagnosis and the impact that blood donors have had on saving her life. Um, Her recovery and rehabilitation is detailed there a little bit as well, and we'll update that um, further as we go on. And there is some beautiful photos with her, with her seizure response and autism service dog, Patty. 
And while you're there, shameless plug, it's the last one. Um, the voting closes today, Friday, the 11th of August um, for the Ausmumpreneur People's Choice Awards for Making a Difference. Um, my work in blood donation advocacy and this podcast has been shortlisted as a finalist um, in category number 10, which is social enterprise and not-for-profit and global brand, which is category 14. And this is to recognize the international reach of this podcast and the way that it is recruiting blood donors from all over the world, recognizing the global importance of blood donation and this incredible act of kindness and humanity. So please, uh, if you could vote for that today, I'll pop a link in the show notes. Um, and there's also uh, links on the Milkshakes for Mali Instagram page and on our website. My guest today has been nominated by so many Milkshakes for Mali listeners um, time and time again. And I'm so grateful that we have finally found a break in her treatment regime where she felt well enough to record this interview. And I am so deeply grateful for her making the time. Her name is Ke Kelly Finlayson. She's a blood donor and a blood product recipient. She's a model, a marathon runner, a brand ambassador, a mother to precious little Sophia and a wife to AFL star, Jeremy. Sounds like a pretty glamorous and amazing life, right? And it was pretty amazing until she found out just after she had given birth to Sophia, her first baby, that she had cancer. And in her words, she missed out on the first year of daughter Sophia's life as she underwent grueling surgeries, radiation, chemotherapy in an effort to stay alive. Kelly isn't the person that you would expect to be diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer at the age of 25. As I said, she's a marathon runner. Um, she's very fit, healthy, um, and health conscious. And Kelly says in this interview, colorectal cancer isn't one of the sexy cancers because no one wants to think about the cancer up your bum. But she is determined to raise awareness about bowel cancer as an ambassador for the Jodie Lee Foundation where she wants all Australians to know the warning signs and to trust their gut if something doesn't feel right. Alongside husband, soulmate and AFL star, Jeremy Finlayson, they continue to raise little Sophia, who is completely oblivious to Kelly's cancer, as she's never known mummy not to have days where she is too unwell to get out of bed. And just a heads up, there is some bonus content um, and a more candid part of this chat that we recorded after wrapping the main body of the episode. Um, I've left the conclusion in where it is, where I say thank you and we end the episode with Kelly. But then we went on to have a bonus chat um, and she was gracious enough to let me hit the record button again when I asked her some more personal questions um, that she was happy to share the answers of with our listeners um, and that is very much, um, where she candidly and very courageously shares about the realities of living with a stoma, the difference between a colostomy and ileostomy and what this means for the intimacy in her marriage. So if that doesn't feel right for you, skip past that bit and that's fine. Just bow out. Um, when I say my thanks for being part of the Milkshakes for Mali community at the end. Um, but I really encourage you to listen to that part and to share it with anyone who might be going through something similar to this because it demystifies it in a way that only someone who has had this experience could do. 
And I'm so, so grateful to Kelly for sharing that extra part at the end of this interview. Um, so to talk about the reality of living with a terminal illness and to thank the Australian blood donors who have saved her life following massive blood loss after one of her surgeries and that continue to make her treatment possible, I give you my chat with Kelly Finlayson. So today on the Milkshakes for Marley podcast, we have the beautiful Kelly Finlayson, who has been nominated by so many of our Milkshakes for Marley um, listeners to come on and tell her story on the podcast. So Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. No problem. So your beautiful little Sophia is asleep at the moment, but if we have to have a little break during the podcast recording or if she needs to join us, that's fine. Um, <laughs> our guests know that we quite often have little people come and join us during our podcast recording. So they just, make things more entertaining anyway. Yeah. And she's a big part of the story, right? That's like she right, needs to yeah. be a part of this. <laughs> um, so we'll start the story um, with meeting... Jeremy and the beginning of your love story because this is so much a story about family and you two falling in love um, is the beginning of that family so can you tell me a little bit about when you guys first met and when that was and how that all came together yeah so we met when we were both 21 I was in Sydney for a Justin Bieber concert (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) so I'm originally an Adelaide girl but yeah I took my friend over there for her 21st birthday and yeah. Jess. Um, I ended up going away to Europe for a couple of uh teaching years, so like a year and a half. Um, just to because that's just all I'd always wanted to do. And his career obviously wasn't going to go anywhere anytime soon. He was only really fresh in his career, so did that while I could. And a few, well, maybe three or four days after I got back, we ended up getting back into into a into touch and haven't seen each other anywhere else, but living beside each other basically yeah. since so yeah when it's right it's right isn't it so what year would that have been um six seven seven years ago what's that 2016 2016 we met all those complete concept of time with those COVID years in the yeah. middle we're like, <laughs> yeah. everything's got structure and then there's like three years of weird COVID haze and then I know the side of it <laughs> yes we met in 2016 and then we um moved in together in 2019 so a few years later yeah so um listeners of our podcast there is many an AFL fan among them (laughs) so when Jeremy was in Sydney he was playing for the GWS Giants at the time um if you're an Adelaide girl does that mean that you grew up on AFL um I I've used to play it I wouldn't say I knew much about it but um, I'm a Collingwood fan, die hard through and through, Ooh. always will be, and they're playing them this weekend. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> I was going to say, we, yeah, there was a bit of a touchy game uh, last Saturday night as yeah. well. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we won't go too deep. <laughs> we don't talk about those ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you guys were just living your young lives, yeah. doing the things that you do, were you, what's it like to be one of the wags? Like, what's it like to be one of the wives and girlfriends of one of the AFL players? Or was that not as prominent because he was in Sydney rather than Melbourne? Well, yeah, that's right. So I didn't even know that it was a, like, obviously I knew of it, but when I met him, I didn't know he was a footballer because he was from the Giants who had been around for three, maybe four years. So 
not a big thing up there. Um, we yeah. could go anywhere and everywhere and not get noticed. And it was yeah, okay. absolutely really, really nice. It was just like mm-hmm. a normal relationship with the perks of good seats at the footy. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but now it's a little bit more hectic, but that's also because I'm so open and honest with my um, situation as well. So, yeah, mm. we, we definitely get noticed a bit more here, but in Sydney it was really quite nice. Yeah, amazing. So you guys didn't get married. You had a baby first. Is that yeah, so we were in the hub. So there wasn't um, a lot of wedding talk happening for anyone, I don't think, yeah. in that time. Um, lots of baby talk for everyone around me, though. So the baby did come first, which was yeah. the best thing that we could have ever done seemingly now that we know what was going on. But, yeah. yeah absolutely. Our fam- regular p- listeners of the pod and people that know the Milkshakes for Marley story will know that we have a strong affiliation with the GWS Giants. So, yeah. um, and that was part of the reason I was asking where your timeline fitted in. Yeah. So in 2019, um, we were living in Canberra at the yeah. time. The Giants for the years before had absolutely bombarded, like in a good way, the yeah. uh, junior AFL clubs in Canberra with merch yeah. and training sessions and really building that profile in Canberra. Um, my poor diehard Western Bulldog supporting husband then lost our sons to being GWS fans, but that was fine. <laughs> um, and... Our, one of our sons got to run the Giants out onto the field in their oh, game. Wow. So I'm sitting in the stands. Marley had been unwell for a little while. We knew that she had epilepsy and she was mm-hmm. having seizures. And I'm sitting in the stands having a cry because I'm excited for Thomas running his favourite team out. Yeah. Um, and Marley has quite a significant seizure in my mm-hmm. arms as that's all going down. We sort of knew the Giants a little bit, but, you know, you don't really know the people behind the Giants at that point. Um, And we had to get an ambulance and so they had to come to the back of where the players' change rooms were and she was in this little GWS Giants jersey and she's this little three-year-old strapped into an ambulance and she goes up to hospital. It was fine. It it wasn't a big seizure compared to what we're used to living with now, but it was early diagnosis. Um, So the club reached out to us afterwards and I sent um, a text message of a photo of her in her little giant's jersey at the hospital later saying you know she's fine everything's okay but it really captured the hearts of a lot of the players um and your now husband was one of them yeah I'm not surprised (laughs) I'm not surprised at all (laughs) they did the most incredible things for our family that you know, there was some a few times where we did some photo stuff for social media and whatever, yeah. but it was the little things like the players taking the time to record little like videos to send yeah. through to our boys because Marley and I ended up in hospital in Sydney for a few months. And, yeah. you know, Callan went and pulled Thomas out of his classroom just as a surprise and went and kicked a footy with him on the oval was when he had done his ACL and missed pretty much that whole season. Oh. It was the grand final year. And, you know, came and visited Marley and I in hospital heaps of times. And I think AFL players get a bit of a bad rap and probably more so in New South Wales, I think, because the NRL players don't make some great decisions at times and they all just get wrapped in together as these bad boy football. They're all young at the start with a whole new environment and they just don't know how to deal with it. And disposable income, you know, like I think we might have all made different choices had we had that income at yeah. that age and not knowing what to do with it. And yeah. um, I think more the point of what I'm trying to say is that behind those jerseys and behind those games on the weekend, 
there's players who have got families and people yeah. that they love and they're used to being part of a team environment and a team culture. How much was that team culture important in having support for you um, after you got that diagnosis? Yeah, well, without the village, honestly, we would not be where we are today. The first time we got hit with it would have been the last time we got hit with it because I wouldn't have made it through that first round without the village that we did have around us, mm-hmm. whether it be like the Port Adelaide Football Club. And I know that it's, it's, it is their job to look after Jeremy, but at the same time, it wasn't their job to look after me and they made sure everything was done for me, for specifically, even for my mum, to make sure that we got were able to get through that so that Jeremy was still able to go out there and perform the way that he's performing, which I know probably seems really trivial to a lot of people, but that is his ha- happiness to see oh. us watch him is was so paramount to get him through that as well. Mm-hmm. But then also like um, the players' partners, the players' partners' parents, like we alone just from the football club would have had hundreds of people just helping us Mm. like the collateral from the football club then also I'm from Adelaide so I had all my school friends and like my family here so it was really I guess quite lucky that we moved here because we didn't know until Mm -hmm. three months oh we were here for so for three months old but we had been living in Adelaide for like four weeks by the time I found out. So we didn't know when we were doing the trade talks that this is how it was going to pan out. And obviously mm-hmm. we're very grateful that we did come home and we are able to be around these people. But yeah, it was it's crazy how much it helps having mm-hmm. I guess a, yeah, a team environment around you. Yeah, sometimes the universe works in funny ways, doesn't it? I that know. you've had so many things that have been up against you, but being in Adelaide during this time yeah. would just be so important. Um, I had a flip through your socials and there was a few posts that were a little bit innocuous to start with that didn't give the full details. Yeah. But you could see there was like, you know, we've all got you, the army's behind you. Yeah. And there was just so much, yeah, of that love and support for you guys. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's a really important thing to see. And I had wondered too where your story lined up with Bobby Hill and his testicular cancer situation as well. I found out about mine three weeks before Zach Williams' sister got relapsed and they were actually in Adelaide here supporting me when they found out about her. And then two months later, Bob, got diagnosed so it was like the three musketeers all going through it at the same time it was not ideal but at least we could like bounce off each other absolutely and the other side to that is too you know these you know you guys are fit healthy health conscious doing all the right things and cancer just doesn't discriminate you know there's lots of lifestyle choices you can make that put you in better stead but there's you know there's not you would never have thought at your age that my age I'm a marathon runner like I'm a pretty fit human and yeah Mm. riddled with it you couldn't have imagined this is where you would be so pre-cancer diagnosis Mm -hmm. tell me about your excitement towards the end of your pregnancy with Sophia um um excitement and also just being completely over it yeah (laughs) because I don't think I guess I didn't get the typical pregnancy either because I was in a hub so we were flying my last flight was 38 weeks pregnant so it was how did they let you get on a plane at 38 weeks pregnant they didn't know I hit it I was like I'm coming (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and then Jeremy actually had to miss the end of that season because we did end up having Sophia and he couldn't leave me in Queensland with no one by myself (laughs) while he traveled and whatnot so um yeah, so obviously we didn't get the typical pregnancy like nesting and nesting stage mm. and all that stuff, which is, I guess, 
I was a bit frustrated about that. But then obviously having my whole first year of motherhood taken away was a lot worse. So I was like, in in hindsight, I probably should have enjoyed that more. But um, you don't, you never know until you know, do you? But um, yeah, no, we were very excited. Jeremy was very excited to be having a daughter. I wanted a voice so badly. (laughs) The moment Bobby, so Bobby actually did my gender reveal passed me the balloon he was like you're not gonna like it so I knew it was a girl straight away I was like I don't even want to pop it (laughs) (laughs) but Jeremy was really excited about being a girl dad I think if we were to have another baby I think we're destined to be girl parents unfortunately for myself (laughs) but very fortunate for him yeah well can I ask that then is that a possibility in the future or has Mm -hmm. your treatment meant that there will be no more little so there'll be no more naturally not for a long time anyway we don't know Mm -hmm. we can't check again for another year post chemo which won't be until may next year and then Mm -hmm. if like it could take more than that to get things going again i am on all the things that try to make things go again but yeah at the moment it's just not a priority um but we are doing all the other avenues like the egg donors the um surrogacy options and stuff like that but at the moment Mm -hmm. we're thinking we'll be an egg donor Mm -hmm. cycle yeah okay we're thinking hopefully depending just one step at a time really yeah, that's so it. much else going on and I ask that in the context of the fact that sometimes you don't have the time to do an egg collection or you know no. sperm freezing or that kind of thing sometimes yeah. the situation is just so critical that you just need to move really quickly and that yeah. trying to keep you alive is far much more important than a potential yeah child down the track well between being diagnosed and starting chemo was two weeks and I had two surgeries between being diagnosed and starting chemo so I didn't have time to do it yet (laughs) so you two described yourselves before you gave birth as two kids that were just having a kid yep how much in that time do you have to grow up so you didn't just become a mum but you then became a mum that was facing her own mortality and I'm going to read you back something that you posted at the time just to get a sense of that three months and that bubble of transitioning to motherhood because having your first baby is insane like it's the biggest transition that you think that you're ever going to go to learning curve in your whole entire life and particularly if you were doing that without family support around yeah. and that kind of thing because of COVID um it's your one month post to yeah. your daughter so one month of you one month of us one month of parenthood one month of watching my two biggest loves become best friends it certainly hasn't been easy the biggest life adjustment we've ever experienced, but I count my lucky stars that your daddy and I get to do it together. I read that reading this last night and cried. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Because, you know, I think you fall in love with your partner in a whole new way when you see them become a father and you become a family unit. Yeah. How scary was it for you thinking that he might be the one raising Sophia and is that the prognosis you were initially given? Uh, so the initial prognosis obviously came a couple of months after that post which to be fair I thought it was a hard month god was I wrong <laughs> that was the easiest <laughs> month of my life <laughs> um, transition yes but easy month considering everything that was about to happen um, the first pro- diagnosis I didn't have much of a idea about cancer I guess it was always an old person's disease I 
had never looked into it, didn't know anything about it. Bowel cancer was one of the good cancers to get because you could just cut it out and move on because there's so much bowel. But because it had spread, I knew that I was in for a pretty long regime of treatment. But um, my surgeon was so confident. Like I was 25 years old. Mm. My body's gone about back, which it did. I did. It did really well. I was considered no evidence of disease after my final surgery in that year and was fine. I guess not really, but what it seems like I was fine for six months after Mm -hmm. I'd finished treatment and surgeries and whatnot. And I was able to be living my life and parenting and doing whatever after Soph had turned one. So like, oh yeah, I missed one year, but I, I'd started parenting normally. So I guess I didn't have the idea of Jeremy becoming a single dad until I did relapse. Cause I know that when it relapses, it means it's more aggressive. So the minute that I saw what it was, the, the first thing that came to my mind was that Sophia was about to be Jez's child and just Jeremy's child. And that's, I guess it, it is hard to come to terms with because I'm not out of it yet. Like I, I've got a scan next week and we're hoping that things are okay and that I can maintain what I'm doing. And like, I don't feel unhealthy, but I know that I'm not out of those woods and it's, it still is a very likely possibility of Jeremy being a single dad in six months time in a year. Somewhat, we don't know. Yeah. And that just makes every single one of those minutes, hours, days so yeah. much more important as well. And it's um, hard because you still get the challenges of having a toddler and being like, go away, I need my space. But then I'm like, Ugh, I don't know how much time I've got. I need you to be near me, but also go away. <laughs> and even not just being physically present with her, but the mental load oh, of having yeah. to manage your treatments and, yeah. you know, thinking about putting things into place for the future. Yeah. Exactly. It would be really like, difficult to stay physically, emotionally, mentally present with her all the time as well because toddlers are a lot. Well, I think it's hard even, yeah, like if I wasn't unwell, like trying to plan for her future, even with myself in the picture and having the digital mm. income and whatnot. But like now that we don't know what the future looks like for us, it's so much harder to like, I guess, not want to overstep and put too much in place as if like I'd given up and mm. doing that because I think I'm going to leave. Like, I feel like that's kind of admitting defeat, which I don't want to do. So like, I'm trying to do just what a normal parent would do, but then in the back of your mind, obviously, because mm. she's got no idea what's going on. No idea at all. Like, yeah, I might have a tape over my port or something. And she's like, oh, mum has mm. got owies. Then she knows that I'm sick on my owie weeks. But mm. other than that, she's got no idea. No. So yeah, trying to like navigate that without making too much of a fuss so she kind of is more naive to it is yes yeah, it's hard <laughs> and like there's no roadmap for that like when no. you decide that you want to have a baby with someone no one prepares you to have no. those types of conversations um so it is stage four colorectal cancer that yeah. is your current diagnosis um yeah. that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is are there organizations that offer you support to navigate those types of conversations? I know when my mum was going through breast cancer in some way, I mean, she's had a good outcome and she's doing really well now, but in some ways that was the best cancer she could possibly have living in a regional area because there were so many support services and organizations and people understand what breast cancer is and they feel like they can talk about it because it's so well known how do people talk to you about colorectal cancer yeah. and what support organizations have helped you along the way? And that's the thing about colorectal cancer is not a sexy cancer, breast not cancer, a sexy cancer. No. cancer, even like test, um, testicular cancer, like it's all talked about even in school because 
you talk about boobs, you talk about your balls, you talk about your skin. Like, it's, just, it's just what it is. Like, nobody talks about their butt Mm-mm. unless it's someone's peachy bum that they're looking at. Like no one's talking about your actual intestine, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I get it. I understand it's a disgusting conversation to have, but it's mm. such an important conversation. But um, there, I'm sure there is places that I could go. Like I've seen a psychologist, we didn't work, so I just stopped that yep. together and I probably do need to go back and work through that but at the same time I'm really good at talking about it with Jez so I feel like he's kind of taken mm. on the role of being a psychologist as well as yeah, a, father yeah. mm. a father and a husband and a nurse and mm. yeah yeah he's and that's one of the things well. about meeting young too is that you guys are growing up together mm. so you're growing up and you're growing through this together yeah, yeah. yeah. like it's we should be even if we didn't have the child like we should be like holidaying and we should yes. be like going to bars and going out on date nights. I don't remember the last time we did any of that. And mm. obviously now we've got Sophia as well. So it's like, we've got to do everything around her already. And then like when I when I am good, obviously we're with her. And then when I'm not yeah. good, I'm in bed and he's with her. So it's like, yeah, yeah it is it's really difficult. But um, I know like I, I'm an ambassador for a um, back answer research foundation and they're pretty good with the whole situation in terms of like if I need to talk about something that I don't actually understand like I literally just go straight to them I'm like give me the facts on this this and this and they're like yeah that'll be good and my surgeon's um assistant Emily she um used to be an oncology nurse so she's obviously got a lot to do with care, like got a lot of knowledge around cancer so she's um really good like I've got her phone number so I message her like yeah, too many times a day about things yeah. that I want to know or if I need something or if I need like a script she'll get it sent to a chemist nearby yeah. or whatever and amazing. also my stoma nurse is really good at that as well so mm-hmm. if I ever have to go to the hospital because obviously Jeremy has to have Sophia and she can't come into the hospital because like mm-hmm. she's a toddler that's going to touch everything so he yeah. just drops me at the door and I walk up and they'll always be next to the bed with me so I'm never really alone even mm-hmm. though technically I am yeah. which is, um, I think it's, it's helped a lot. I think my positive attitude towards everything in terms of like not being naive, but um, not letting the negative thoughts take over not letting cancer con- consume my mind. Cause as soon as it would do that, I think mm-hmm. I would be done for all over. And yeah. so many people that so many cancer patients that we've interviewed through the podcast and that I have known have said how important that mindset is in terms of their experience of cancer, but the way that they feel like it impacts their outcomes as well. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I think that's probably why old people are seen as the people that are cancer patients because they've lived their life. They're not really fussed about going Mm. like, they're going to die somewhere or another. Like, why not be a 90-year-old with cancer that's gone? Like, at least like you've, you've lived your life and that's, I feel like that they let their mind be overcome by it and that's mm-hmm. why they pass away. Whereas I think yeah. that it is a disease that we can not cure, but we can manage mm-hmm. not easily, but yeah, we can do it. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the um, role that blood donors have played in your cancer treatment and the options that you've had available. Do you know what blood products you've needed during your treatment? Yeah. So I was in ICU after a surgery and I lost way too much (laughs) way too much blood so obviously I had um blood transfusions I haven't had had plasma Mm -hmm. but I have had multiple blood and iron transfusions yeah 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 Yeah. 
And I think too, you know, even the surgeries that you have had that people don't realize that if they don't actually need blood during their surgeries, that would have been on hand there. Like they need to have a certain amount of that as a backup plan if something does go wrong. So lots of people think that they haven't had. Well, even if something doesn't go wrong, they still, I feel like they're just pumping it into you. Yeah. Mm, They're like the more in the easier this recovery is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, yeah, can help you bounce back so much quicker, even if it isn't, you know, in a life-threatening situation. Um, And that's part of the education that we do through this podcast as well, is that blood products aren't just life-saving in acute situations, but they're also, you know, life-preserving, they improve people's quality of life. Um, And sometimes that is buying people more time. And I'm sure that having those blood products have given you the treatment options and the hope as well mm. that you really need. And well, knowing it's there is just, I guess, important. And I never would have thought of it. I've always donated blood, but I never really thought about the intensity of actually needing it. Mm. Like if I'm like, yeah, someone will need this one day, but you don't realize until you're in the same situation of needing it, like how badly you actually need it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And how quickly you need to yeah. get it into your body. So tell me about the work that you do for the Jodie Lee Foundation and the Trust Your Gut campaign. Yeah, so the foundation basically is portraying the exact same messages that I'm trying to get out there as well. So like, no, I'm not doing any research into it because I don't want to know any more than I already do know about Mm. the disease. Um, I I know enough. I know enough to get me through and that's all I need to know. Um, But we're, we're both trying to get the message out about the importance of early onset detection because like I said earlier, it's the best cancer you can get because it can just be cut out, but it can only just be cut out if it's found early. So yeah, I guess the Trust Your Gut campaign is just going over the symptoms and it's there's like a um, tracker or like symptom checker on the website and it, it just tells you what you need to do if you, the symptoms are present mm. or if you've got all of the symptoms and where you should go and mm. you've got blood in your store where you should go and stuff like that. So I guess, we, yeah, we're just trying to get as many people as possible to get checked if they've got something wrong and to trust mm. their gut. Yeah. And I absolutely encourage any of the listeners to today's podcast to go to the link that we've popped in our show notes and have a look at that uh, symptom because tracker yeah. thing because I had a look last night and it's easy yeah. to use and yeah I think it's a really yeah, great so tool simple. um because it's the people that don't think it applies to them that it's the most important to have a look at those things and to be aware of what yeah. to look out for what really struck me a lot about your story was how normal it is in inverted commas when you're postpartum to have some digestive constipation you know you've just had a baby your pelvic floor is a little bit different you know a bit of abdominal pain pelvic pain you've just made a human and I'm sure during COVID there wasn't a great availability of you know pelvic floor physiotherapists to help (laughs) you bounce back from you know pregnancy and birthing and all of that kind of stuff yeah I would have and even going to a GP and saying, you know, I'm a bit constipated, they'd be like, well, do your pelvic floor exercises. Yeah. It would be really difficult to know that there was something really wrong given the symptoms you were experiencing. Yeah, exactly. At what point did you know something really wasn't right with your body? Um, I think I kind of knew something wasn't right for quite a while, but in terms of not knowing 
because I hadn't had a baby before I mm. genuinely thought it was just being postpartum and not being able to do things normally mm. but it was Jeremy that noticed that well not noticed Jeremy's the one that was like you need to see a doctor this isn't normal it can't be normal the frequency of me needing to go to the toilet which mm-hmm. I would go to the toilet and not actually be able to go to the toilet felt like I needed to go so badly but it was actually just a fat tumor mm-hmm. in my bowel that I thought I needed to push out but I couldn't get out obviously because mm-hmm. of the stool. so yeah the frequency of me going to the toilet and him joking about it and me getting angry about it, it was like we'll go see a doctor so we can get over this sort of thing yeah 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 and also, you know, you're going through such a big transition. Oh. You are tired. You're hormonal. Yeah. Like your body is just changing so much. And, and like you don't have time to go to a GP when you're a new mom. The two hours of a day that you get free, you just want to sit there and do nothing. You don't want to make mm. an appointment. Like, and I know how important it is now, but in the like when you're in the thick of it, mm. the last thing you're gonna think of is looking after yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I would really encourage people to go and have a look at the link, um, that we've popped in our show notes because you just never know when in the future that might just jog a memory of having a look at it or listening to this interview. Um, because that early detection is just so important. It's so, it could literally save your life and that's. Absolutely. Um, so how are you finding being back? in Adelaide are you enjoying living back there uh, it's a lot easier than Sydney we I used to travel I think it was like seven kilometers to work in the morning it would take me an hour now mm. seven kilometers is 15 minutes and I'm like oh heaven mm. but you know it's really <laughs> easy being back here and I like we miss probably the weather and obviously our friends in Sydney but yeah of course not much else <laughs> yeah <laughs> um Yeah, well, I'm glad that, yeah, all of that new stuff is working out for you guys. Yeah. Where are you up to in your treatment regime this time around? And have you got any idea of what the short-term future looks like for you guys? Yeah, so I finished up radio two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've obviously done my whole course of chemo plus a few extra because he's like, oh, you can if you want. And as soon as you put any doubt in my mind, I was like, more, more, more. Absolutely. Do all of the things. Yeah, definitely. um, Chemo is like my safety blanket, which is not a healthy safety blanket to have. So we need to find a new safety blanket. But at the moment, Mm -hmm. any treatment plan that's coming from the doctors is safety to me whereas obviously I'm, I'm terrified of relapsing so mm. I'm just taking anything and everything I'm doing like my um all my alternate stuff so I do like hyperbaric once a week I do vitamin c drips I'm seeing a um alternate doctor on Saturday to see what else I can like what other supplements I can chuck yeah, in amazing I should be eating a lot healthier but when, after being through going through chemo and losing the 15 kilos that I lost mm. down to being such a minuscule little little girl basically yeah, there wasn't much of you to start with there's not much to lose <laughs> no um, and I'm just terrified of getting that skinny again that I just eat mm. whatever I feel like eating in terms of like making sure I actually get food in yeah um, so yeah I, I, there's things I could do better but there's also things that I'm doing that ha- other people wouldn't be doing so like I feel mm. like I'm definitely trying to stay on top of it a lot more and be more proactive but um, I have a scan on Tuesday next week and mm-hmm. that will tell me what what's next mm-hmm. everything's in 12 week blocks usually because that's how long it takes for things to change on a scan really long six right. to 12 weeks but um I also get blood tests every three weeks so my blood test is tomorrow and that monitors 
the tumor markers, which haven't gone anywhere above normal in a very, very long time. So everything's looking really, really promising that I probably won't be no evidence of disease, which is fine, but it will be very maintainable without chemo, which is all I need so that I can keep living. Mm-hmm. I'm not a normal life, obviously. It will never be normal again if I'm living with cancer, but it's it's so that I can live a long life mm-hmm. without any symptoms, without the sudden shit. It's spread everywhere. Like we've, we've got to have maintenance pla- things in like maintenance um, techniques in place so that we can can keep it at, at bay. Like, yeah, it might still be there, but it's not growing. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not growing, I can live for a really long time. Okay. Yeah. How difficult was it after you did the project interview and people thought that you were just miraculously cured and everything was better to then have those conversations with people and explain that it is still a stage yeah. four? So it was quite frustrating because I'd actually had an interview with the publication that went live saying I was cancer free only a couple of weeks before the project and they um, completely manipulated my words and obviously only focused in on the good stuff and that was that I am so basically when I relapsed I had um my main relapse in my lung and then I had spreading through my stomach and um pelvis and that was all gone so that was technically clear but I still have this tumor or lesion in my lung so they have just taken that it's clear and run with it not taking into consideration clearly anything because I had family members messaging me afterwards being like my God, like, I'm so happy for you, phone calls. And I'm just sitting there like, no, actually, I'm still living with a terminal illness and I've actually still got treatment starting again next Monday. Like, I'm not in any way cancer-free, not out of the woods and won't be for several years to come, Mm -hmm. which is another frustrating thing because I told them that two weeks prior. But, yeah, it it is really frustrating when they they Mm -hmm. use me as clickbait. And yeah. this publication uses me as clickbait on the front page of whenever I come out with anything because they know that it's going to sell papers because the people in Adelaide are a, quite a close um, community. They're mm. going to come together. They're going to read it. They want to know what's happening in our life because not mm. only is Jeremy in the public eye, I'm now in the public eye. And my story mm. is so, um, like so many people can relate to it in their own way it might mm. not be cancer but in their own way they can relate to it and they like seeing the little wins because it gives them hope yes, so absolutely yeah my name and my face on the front page of the paper mm. is mm. yeah and that's interesting that you you've framed it that way because that's the next part of the question yeah. that I was going to ask is that apart from the fact that that was so frustrating for you and your family on behalf of the other cancer sufferers, how yes. frustrating was that for you? Because it gives them a false sense of hope or a false sense yes. of your journey, or it would make people question the things that you had previously said as well. Like yes. even in terms of your authenticity and the way that you've told your story, which I had people saying that I was that, you know, that girl that faked to have cancer, got all this money and then Belle Gibson. Yeah. I don't know. And I had people being like, she's just another one of those. Like she never had cancer. I was like, what? who the f- Fudge about having this stupid disease and goes like no so no one's gonna do that no one's gonna relapse just for fun like oh no no there's another one as well similar to the bell gibson one it's scamander is another big podcast that has just dropped and it's going everywhere at the moment and it's a similar one it's somebody who was fundraising it was in the u.s but she was fundraising and did all of this work for cancer organizations and stuff 
and she was uploading photos of her being in hospital but she would just get really dehydrated and admit herself into ed so she could like do a social media post with a drip in her arm like I just can't I I can't wrap my brain around I haven't experienced I've had some yeah health stuff nothing quite like you guys have but being the mother of somebody who has been through that and living in hospital and you know you were talking about your port before and Marley's got hers that she calls her special button and having to be accessed all the time for treatments and she's had you know rounds and rounds and rounds of treatment we would have the same port because I've got a pediatric one (laughs) Ah, there you go (laughs) so have you only had it placed in the one spot have you still got your first one yeah, um, but yeah. I think it's moved, which so I've actually got an appointment to go get it checked tomorrow. I yeah. think it's improved. <laughs> Marley had to have hers re-stitched and once it was, it was much easier to access because it was getting to the point it was kind of flipping when they put the pressure on it because yeah. it just needed to re-stitch back into the muscle. Um, but they've told us if she needs another one, we're going to put it down on her rib cage because apparently oh, yeah. at her size, they're a little bit easier to put them down okay. there and she had a kinked central line with her first they're so So bizarre. They're so clever, these people. Yeah. It was good. What we loved about Marley's was that it gave her an element of choice because she was yeah. so little um, and she always called cannulas teddies because their pediatric ones have always got the teddy stickers on them when yeah. they tape them in. Um, so she's got a special button. Why she started calling her porter a special button, we still don't know, or teddies. And we it could works. say to her, you know, you do have to have it accessed because it's treatment day, but would yeah. you like special button or teddies? And because she oh, got yeah. to choose which one. And she always chose special button because she said it, it doesn't hurt as much. <laughs> so that was fine. She got that done. Um, so just to round us out, there is no doubt having spoken to you that Australian blood donors have played such an important role, yeah. um, not just in giving you know, the treatment that you've had, but in allowing your body to recover with the blood products you've had and give yeah. you the best fighting chance for that other medication and treatment regimes to work, yeah. improving the quality of that time that you have um, got, especially when you haven't known what the outcome of your treatments will be. Yeah. Have you got a message for the people that have donated blood um, that you have received or for anyone who is considering donating in the future? I think me, and I think I could probably say this on behalf of everyone that's had to receive it, is literally just thank you and keep doing it because I know that I've done it and I didn't see the value in it, but I just did it because it was a thing to do. But it is genuinely so important. Mm. Like it it saves lives. And if it doesn't save a life, it's improving the quality of someone's life. And yeah. Yeah. And one of the big narratives we run alongside of all of our messaging um, through the Milkshakes for Mali movement is that blood donors don't just save lives, they keep families together. And I'm so glad that Australian blood donors have given you and Jeremy and little Sophia as much time together as you can possibly have. No, it's great. We're very lucky to have the technology that we do now. Yeah, thank you so much for being a guest on the Milkshakes for Marley podcast today, Kelly, and good luck with the test results coming up. And yeah, from everyone in our community, we really just wish you all the best. Thank you very much. When I first reached out to Kelly about being a Milkshakes for Marley guest, I had no idea that we would record an interview like that. It's just such a raw and beautiful and intimate episode. Um, everything that new motherhood is and should be. And yet she was really stripped of that opportunity to do it in the first year. 
Um, but you can really hear in her voice how much she appreciates Australian blood donors for giving her extra time to be a mum and spend time with Sophia and spend time with Jeremy. Um, her approach to navigating her terminal illness and what that means for her future and her little family is just so sobering. And I'm so grateful to her for being so honest in this interview and especially for demystifying what it's like to live with stoma, colorectal cancer um, and terminal illness while thanking the Australian blood donors who have made her surgeries and her treatment possible. Please head to the Jody Lee Foundation website to see the work that Kelly is doing as an ambassador for the Trust Your Gut campaign. And while you're there, I highly recommend that you do the symptom tracker quiz. Even if you don't feel that it is applicable to you right now, you never know um, in the future when it might just jog a memory of having done that quiz. Um, that's the big message that Kelly really shares is that early detection can completely change your outcomes. So I'd really recommend that you have a look at that and I'll pop a link in the show notes. And also head to Kelly's Instagram page to check out the clothing range that she's just released this week in partnership with the ORTC Clothing Company and the Jodie Lee Foundation. Um, it's a campaign and a um clothing range launch that's all about getting us to check in with our loved ones um, and in Kelly's words checking in can save a life if not yours someone you've inspired Kelly you have certainly inspired me um, and you have fueled my passion for blood donation advocacy work and I am wishing you Jeremy and Sophia so 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 much more time together as a little family if after listening to this episode today, you would like to become a blood donor in the future, please register your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. Um, I love being able to track our new donors where they're popping up in Australia um, and the Australian lives that we have saved together. This podcast was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. I'm also your executive producer. Today's guest was Kelly Finlayson. Audio production and welcome to country by my amazing husband, Jeff Fisher. Social media assets by Jason at Strosky Media. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend. Um, make sure you are following me on Instagram, Facebook, and our new website, milkshakesformarley.org. And one final plug, please vote for the People's Choice Awards um, for Milkshakes for Marley and me, Kate Fisher, to win category uh, number 10, social enterprise, and number 14, global brand. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prisma. So tell me about what it's like living with a stoma and is there anything that you wish you had have known um, when you first had it put in that would have made things a bit easier? Yeah. So when my surgeon, so the first initial meeting with my surgeon, the day after that I found out about everything and like what was going to go on, um, he mentioned the stoma. I had no idea what he was talking about mm. at all. Um, he pulled out a bag and showed me and I was just like, I'm going to have to yeah. like give you more information. Like even to this day, my dad still thinks that a hose was like plugged into my bowel and that's what was used, like not knowing. Um, so for people that don't know what it is or what it does. Yeah. So what it, is it? it's quite um, an unusual thing if you haven't heard of it before and if you haven't seen it before, because it's, it's quite literally your bowel diverted from 
Uranus and yep. stitched to your stomach with a bag attached to it and that's where you're, you'd catch your stool. Yeah. Um, to be fair, while I was going through treatment, it, it was the best thing I've ever had. At the, Initially, when I first saw it, I thought my life was over because mm-hmm. my stomach now had, it looked like a bum hole on my stomach. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's what it looked like for people that are trying to like come to try to, to think visualize what, it yeah visualize what it is um it, it, that's what it looked like mine was it was called the perfect stoma so it was a cute little button on my on my belly I call it cute now because I've seen what they could look like and yeah okay it was very visually pleasing in comparison but um yeah it it acted uh, it acted it just it, I don't know how to explain it but like when you are going through chemotherapy and um, radiotherapy in particular, with when you do it, the combined one, so you do both as different regimes, but mm. the first initial one is both together. It's combined and the acid in your stomach, which obviously then you have to pass. Mm-hmm. If I was having to pass that through my actual bum, I would have been in the most hysterical pain yeah. ever. So I'm so grateful that I had this, stoma that has no nerve ending so has no feeling mm-hmm. as my diversion because not only that I had this big tumor in my colon so it was getting bigger and bigger bigger and swelling even more when it was being attacked obviously because it doesn't like being attacked yeah I wouldn't have been out of hostels and I would have had sepsis mm-hmm. so um yeah it, it saved my life mm. as much as I hated her she saved my life um but I guess people that don't know what they are, they and naively or like I guess I don't know how to what word to use, but I was one of those people that were like, hell no, yeah, I don't want that on my stomach. I'd rather just do things how they have to happen. Mm. But knowing now and even after being reversed, how much easier they are to manage than having treatment without one. Mm-hmm. They are the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. They save lives. And I know that my friend who has um, chronic Crohn's, she's had um, the first ever stem cell transplant for Crohn's in Australia. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, insane. First one ever. Um, she has a bag at the moment because obviously, I don't know how Crohn's works probably, but um, her bowel, she's got not much left. So she had yeah. to have that um, reversed, I'm um, sorry, diverted to her stomach in her stoma. And her quality of life instantly wow it it changes they're incredible it's so hard to explain I know the psychology of them like I spoke to a group of nurses um at a stoma function and the psychology behind a stoma is worse than the actual stoma because of coming to terms with the diversion like it's it's a massive change in your life like it is but it's the best possible change for the situation you're going through yeah absolutely it takes a while to get there, but once you're there, you're like, how am I ever going to live without this? Like it's, it is incredible what that thing can do. So when you said before that you had it reversed, have you still got it? No, so it's been reversed. So I had a um, colostomy, which is um, your large intestines diverted at the start um, because it was just above my tumor. So they're going to cut that out anyway. So that's just where they diverted from. Yeah. Um, And then after my, uh, my um, ultra low anterior, so that's the resection, um they diverted from my small intestine so it's called an ileostomy um and that was a bit harder because it's looser stools obviously from your large intestine it's had longer to bulk up and then yeah so then that's when I lost all my weight so that 
obviously mm-hmm. nothing was absorbing into my body so they are that's probably a harder one to have and mm-hmm. has more tech like difficulties in terms of like the amount of malnutrition and whatever but um I had that and then I got reversed in September and it takes six weeks to mm-hmm. learn how to go to the toilet again so I was quite literally like an infant learning how to go to the toilet and because I'd had so much colon removed and my entire rectum so my um, colon is attached to my anus so there's nothing between my colon and anus whereas normally it's like three different muscles Um, yeah it was it it was quite a process to learn to go to the toilet and learn the sensations of needing to go to the toilet again because I'd been so used to just walking around and it happening itself yes yes just, just so happens. yeah there's, there's a psychology bet- between having it and then mm. having it reverse so it, it was a process but it, it did save my life and save me so much discomfort that I didn't need to have so yeah it was yeah it was three weeks into my reverse so I asked for it back <laughs> really <laughs> um we don't have to keep this in and you don't have to answer right. it. you can just say no but just in terms of you were saying before about young women having them has it, I mean, the cancer and the stoma and the bag and all of the things, how much has it impacted your sexual function? Are you still able to have an intimate relationship? So with the chemo itself, you can't be intimate anyway because you can't have any physical contact with saliva or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I've obviously been on chemo since December 2021 yeah. until a few weeks ago. So there's been absolutely zero intimacy. And not only that, you don't feel great anyway in yourself. Yeah, and I know that my husband obviously always thought I was beautiful and whatnot. Yeah. I didn't give a shit about my stoma yeah, yeah. that much. He's like, whatever, doesn't care at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was nothing. It was a bag on your stomach. But um, yeah, I, I think I'm in a lucky situation in terms of I've already had a child, so things that already changed. Mm-hmm. And I've got a husband. Like I've got I've got the two things that most women want in life is children and a husband. Mm-hmm. I've got a friend that has a child, but to like a lot like an eight-year-old doesn't have a partner. And mm-hmm. I know that she's found the psychological psychological side of things so much harder mm-hmm. because she doesn't have that person to not only can like to talk about it with but she doesn't feel beautiful or mm. confident in herself to be able to go out and find someone either even though she's yep. she's in remission and she's mm. fine in terms of the cancer but mentally mm. in complete like the confidence you lose going through these sorts of things mm. is yeah I'm a very confident person but even I sometimes have imposter syndrome like should mm. I be doing this should I not because of the confidence you end up lacking yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, so many people don't feel like they can ask questions like that yeah. because they haven't experienced it or they don't want to say it in the wrong way. Yeah. Or I think just opening up that narrative destigmatizes yeah. it and it normalizes that experience yeah. for someone else if they end up going through it. So well, that's right. And I know like my friends, so she, so Sophie, she's gone through the almost exact same time as me. And now that she's in remission she also has survivor's guilt because she's watching me go through it again and it's like it's just a never-ending cycle so much collateral damage and yeah yeah she she tells her story really well as well actually but um she yeah she's definitely lost every all of her confidence and she's the most beautiful perfect human but obviously it's so hard to see that yourself when you've just been through Mm. the most traumatizing year of your life like yeah 
wonder if she's needed any blood products. Maybe I should have a chat to her as well. Oh, she would have, her tumor exploded in her bowel. So she really, <laughs> she's had some intense surgeries, that woman.